Hello, everybody. Just a quick update in advance of today's episode. The episode starts out with great audio quality, but unfortunately, we had some technical difficulties and had to switch to another platform, and the audio is not as good on that platform. The content is great, though, so bear with the audio, and I'm sure you'll get a lot of value out of the episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, the home of New Zealand's only specialist evaluative UX research practice and world-class UX lab, enabling brave teams across the globe to de-risk product design and equally brave leaders to shape and scale design culture. Here on Brave UX, though, it's my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings, and expert advice of world-class UX design and product management professionals. My guest today is Lada Golenko. Lada is a Senior Director of Research at Mural, the digital workspace for visual collaboration that's experienced some crazy growth, as you might expect, during the COVID-19 pandemic. An organizational psychologist by training, Lada's research career began by working on programs for the European Commission and European Union before moving into enterprise UX, where she started out as a VR designer for British Telecom in the very early 2000s. After leaving BT, Lada went on to work for IBM, where she helped to level up the enterprise's internal UX practices and led multiple client-facing engagements as part of the global services division. It was during this time that Lada also co-founded the Interaction Design Association, also known as the IXDA, which grew to over 120,000 members. Moving on from IBM to Microsoft, Lada was appointed the head of UX research for what is now known as Skype for Business, and later a senior UX experience manager for Microsoft's cloud products. Not afraid to mix things up, though. After six years at Microsoft, Lada went agency side, where she took on the role of Insights and Strategy Director for Artifact, a global product and UX design consultancy, and later her own consultancy practice. More recently, prior to joining Mural, Lada was the Director of Experience Research at Smartsheet, where she architected and enabled an organization-wide customer-obsessed culture all while maintaining a team of UX researchers that supported 15 product pillars and multiple business units. Someone who is adept at understanding and managing complexity at scale, who embraces massive challenges and describes herself as having unlimited passion for what she does. I'm looking forward to seeing where this conversation may take us. Lada, welcome to the show. Good day, Brandon. Thank you very much for having me. And it sounds like a really, really long career, so you're probably aging me, but I am impressed. One of the things that I really enjoy about these conversations is doing the research into the person who I'm going to be speaking with. And Lana, for our conversation today, something that stood out for me is that you studied a Bachelor of Science as well as a Master's of Social and Organizational Psychology at Karazin University in Ukraine. Now, I googled that university, and I have to say the buildings do cut a rather imposing Soviet era shape on that horizon. Now, what was it like studying there in Ukraine not that long after the fall of the USSR? It actually was during the fall of the USSR that I was in university. And it, it was really interesting time because there was lots of change was happening around us. And specifically for me and my fellow classmates, uh, psychology was a very new subject. Only about, we had 25 people in my class and not every university did psychology. So we didn't even know what we were going to do after we graduate apart from being scientists. And during that time, we were studying a lot of things which were happening and changing, and we almost starting seeing our different career paths being formed in front of us. So the changes happened and kind of opened our eyes to what we can potentially do with our degrees. Mm. And UX, unfortunately, or fortunately, wasn't one of them back then. What was it like, though? Take us back to sort of the mood that you were living and experiencing during that time of rapid change as a student. You know, what what does it feel like? Was it terrifying? Was it exciting? Where did it sit with you? It's all, it all started a few years 
before that in 1985 when I was still at school and uh, Mikhail Gorbachev came to power. So by the time I was at, uh, at university, we were already the change was normal. And it's an interesting state to live in when the change is normal and you don't know what's going to happen uh, the next day. But I think that the kind of lesson from, from that period was a lesson of flexibility and living one day at a time and being very adept and adapt to change. And that's mm. what I always say carry with me to this day is while we all try to make big plans, be aware of the immediate surroundings and I would never end up where I am right now, if I had a big grand plan for my life and I followed it, because there were so many opportunities for change along the way that I followed. So I think that kind of the formative period of that years had a big impact on my career, although this is probably the first time when I articulated because no one ever asked me that kind of question. Yeah, well, I was curious to see how that might have shaped how, how you'd approach your career and served you. I mean, it's clearly a, a an experience uh, of great change, as you mentioned, and something that could, I suppose, destabilize some people and make them very fearful of what's to come. But it sounds like you really owned that and you've used that to great advantage through your career. Speaking of your career, before we were on air and recording, you told me that you just recently taken off your LinkedIn profile your first job and I had heard you speak about this before so I hope you don't mind me asking and it was that you had started your research career in prison now that probably sounds worse than it is but I was curious to ask you about that what is the story there it was still back in college a classmate a good friend of mine she was very interested in forensic psychology and uh, the three of us got together and through personal connections of my dad we actually got part-time job in a prison it was a female prison the only one in in the region and they had a new psychologist there and it was the first time a prison had a psychologist so the psychologist in the prison was uh, working on developing rehabilitation programs for inmates and we were in i think it's the second grade second second year in college when the three of us got there and just to help and get some kind of um, job experience but also to do our coursework uh, in the, using the other example, so for three years, I had been doing research on personality changes in long-term imprisonment, which means that my sample were first-degree mur murderers and repeat oh. drug offenders because they would get the longest sentence. And the kind of research we would do is we would run a battery of psychological tests with them before they got into the prison or very soon after they got into prison, after the first month then after six months and uh, closer to the release date so that, that we could trace how their personality changes and because mm -hmm. those two samples had very different murderers and drug offenders have very different personality profiles to begin with one is uh, external aggression another one is more internal aggression so we mm -hmm. could see how this changes and we even published our work in one of the ukrainians journals so what was interesting for my career is wherever i would go and i work as cross-cultural management and later in ux i always say that research is research is research because it's a the methods are universal the context can change but right now i'm doing exactly the same kind of research that i was doing 25 years ago mm when i look at product adoption right if you look think about the product adoption curve and how we learn about what happens with our product out there the life cycle of a product it's exactly the same setup you do the out of box experience right you do what happens uh, or first impressions you do what happens with product after a week after a month and and the long tail of learning and adoption it's exactly the same research framework and that's the beauty of it. That's what I love about the profession is universal skills, universal knowledge. And we can go from context to context and get a variety of experiences while still using our underlying, the, the, the kind of the basic skills that we got as researchers. 
it's great to hear that the, the methods and the basic skills are transferable, but I'm not going to let you get away from telling me about what you learned about murderers and, um, and drug addicts in your first job. What were the key insights from the studies that you, you had done and what you published? Uh, so that different personalities, they do change, right? So, and starting point, and what happens is if rehabilitation doesn't happen early enough, because uh, their early thinking was that they need to be rehabilitated or think about rehabilitation close to their release date. Mm -hmm. And what our research has shown that no, it's actually a journey. I'm, I'm using the words, UX words now, we didn't know I called it a journey, but the journey starts the moment they get in, right? So if we want some, if we want to help someone recover and adjust, because when you have prison sentences, eight plus years, we're talking about adjustment, right? So it needs to start very early and you can't just upload it to the end. Of the process so that was uh, one of the big insights i i also say that as far as work goes i never complain about stress at work ever since because it was probably the most stressful job of my life given that i was 18 when i started yeah. and i came from a very supportive loving family and that contrast of hearing the stories of the people i was working with and trying to Empathize without getting too personal, because in that situation, one thing you shouldn't be doing is empathize too much. In forensic psychology, as well as doctors, that's why doctors never operate on their family members, right? Mm -hmm. They have to draw a line between like not making it too personal, not being too invested emotionally. So that, that was also very good learning of how to balance that and probably why I I knew that after a couple of few years there that it wasn't a career path for me because I'm very emotionally invested mm. in what I do and it wasn't healthy. I was going to ask you about that. What sort of training or forewarning did you have about the situations that you were likely to encounter as someone who was so young and put in that position to do that kind of work? Nothing. Nothing whatsoever. We showed up on the doorstep and uh, the psychologist there explained what we needed to do. And he told us, oh, yeah, listen and filter. Don't get emotionally engaged. He spent 15 minutes with us. We observed, shadowed him for a couple of uh, sessions. Mm -hmm. And then we were doing it. So he wouldn't let us do interviews ourselves. That was his job because it requires lots of skills. So we were mostly administering the tests and working the backend, processing the data, everything else, and shadowing him mm -hmm. uh, while he was uh, interviewing the inmates and while he was working, coaching them and, and building the rehabilitation program for them and the inmates. I'm not trying to draw a, an equivalent line between that type of research that you experienced so young and the type of research that we do in UX, but I have had a, a number of conversations with fairly seasoned UX researchers and other product professionals about doing research that's put them in some uncomfortable positions. I mean, nowhere near as extreme as what we've just talked about. But there doesn't seem to be any particular discipline or training that exists within the broader practice of UX research to prepare us for situations that we may not be expecting. You know, what sort of psychological safeguards or practices have you encouraged in your team or do you believe is necessary as a discipline for us to be discussing and putting in place for our, for our own psychological safety? That's a great question, and thank you for bringing it up, because I do think that we need to have that kind of training. And more and more, by we, I mean researchers and designers, because again, our careers are so flexible, and we never know when we're going to work next. And the discipline goes beyond the technology itself. But even technology is everywhere, right? So having that uh, special training on how to deal with difficult situations like that, how to deal with them ourselves, and also how to help our subjects to deal with that situation so that because we become part of their journey when we do research with them, we become part of their journey, part of their experience. So we are responsible for helping them. So I, I do believe, I think it's a, it's a good question is that we do need to get some kind of special training like uh, counselors and therapists get on how to walk 
esteem line. Yeah. Of that. I want to come back to your family, Lada. You mentioned that you grew up in a very loving and supportive family, and that was a huge contrast between the people that you encountered in prison. Now, I understand that choosing to be a UXer wasn't necessarily an easy choice. In fact, you've said in the past that your family, in your family, medicine is what people do when they grow up. And you said that your mother once accused you of betraying family values over your choice to be a UXer. How serious was she? She was pretty serious <laughs> because I was the first one to, to deviate in my family from that family history of being a, a doctor. And I think that her first reaction was disbelief. She's like, what do you mean? I was like, mm, and that's not for me. I was like, no, oh, you're just kidding. And, and the sort of state of denial, I think she went through like seven stages of grief, right? And the first <laughs> one was denial, and then she went to bargaining, and then she went to the, the rage, how dare you are, dude. But I wanted to be, when I was in high school, I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to be a journalist because that's what my was, again, because I didn't know much about psychology back then, it was my way to engage with people, to tell a story, to get the story out of someone right to do the kind of research without calling it research so that that was my idea of being a journalist and my my parents had a friend who uh, was a journalist at one of the uh, main uh, russian uh, newspaper and he told me once my mom asked uh, to ask him to give me professional advice and his professional advice was very simple he closed uh, the room to uh, the door to my room and told me that was back in the, in the 80s. Uh, he said, uh, Lada, there are two oldest professions in the world. One of them is journalism. It depends on you how much you want to back over, bend over backwards, but you'll have to. In the environment where we live, you'll have to. So if it's not something that you can live with yourself, try to find something else and try to find a profession that would still let you channel and embrace what you love mm -hmm. but you won't be but you won't need to sell your soul as often as we do in back in the soviet union journalism right what so, what, a, that, what a warning that was i mean what wow, a warning what, it was yeah. right and and that was it and he came out we came out of the rooms like okay mom I'll, I'll look for something else and psychology came as something that Again, well, storytelling, engaging with people. Why do you want to be a journalist? Kind of, he, he, being good journalist, he know, he knew how to ask really good questions. So even a couple of questions later, it's like, well, look at this and look at that. Mm -hmm. So I stumbled upon psychology, and then I stumbled upon UX, and that's probably the story of my life. I always say, like, I want to have a tattoo. The only thing that prevents me from having a tattoo is no one can come up with a symbol for it and the symbol is serendipity so brandon if you know how would the symbol icon is for serendipity please let me know i'll have a tattoo on my wrist <laughs> because that's the story of my life stumbling upon things we need an emoji for that <laughs> right lucky encounters and and the combination of that i think that back to the early question that you asked the flexibility Mm. being open to opportunities and and pivoting a little bit not too much because i've never pivoted completely in my career but career change it's more like pivoting and saying oh if this doesn't fit a little bit what else can i do and i also think that that sort of my personal story became a good lesson for me professionally because i teach my team i always uh, say to them is do what you can with what you have where you are Right, that having a flexibility adjustment, you cannot do exactly what you want. There's always a way, there's always another solution in the same direction. It won't be exactly what you want, but as long as you understand the underlying motivation, the underlying needs, not the wants. Again, another thing I always say, like, I don't care about what my customer wants, I care about what my customer needs. Right. And I think that coming to that level of needs rather than wants helps us see opportunities. It also seems to me to be a, a way of approaching research that should actually take some of the weight off the members of your team that are actually doing the research and something that often, in, well, I would say in most disciplines, but probably more so in UX and design, people hold on to perfectionism quite tightly. And I think having that flexible mindset 
it must be quite liberating for your team members. I hope so. It's it's interesting enough. It's it's also probably very difficult to master. Mm-hmm. And and a good example here is it's very easy to have a discussion guide or put together a discussion guide and follow the discussion guide during the interview, right? Because you have your time to prep in advance. You have. I always say to my team there are places for discussion guides, but when you talk to subject matter experts or when you talk to power users, when you talk to people who understand the conversation, uh, the best discussion guide is the absence of discussion guide. The best discussion guide in this case, talking to subject matter experts is to tell them what you want the outcomes of the session to be. And as long as they they understand the outcomes, they can take you on a journey that you didn't know existed. Pretty much probably like right now, I'm sure you had some planned questions, but as I answer, you have new questions in your head, I can see, right? And follow the lead. So a lot of that, what I'm trying to teach my team and researchers is have an idea in your head, but have an idea of what you want to achieve, not the questions you want to ask. And then follow the lead and follow the conversation because we don't know what we don't know. Right. 100%. You're telling me to close my discussion guide right now. <laughs> no, I'm telling you to have it if you're short of questions and if you don't have, you know, it's late for you. I know your imagination doesn't work as would ask. I want to get to question three ladder and you have it and forget to get it. To question right? three. Come on. <laughs> have it and forget it. No, I love it. It's so true. Actually, every conversation that I prepare for for the podcast, of course, I prepare for it. I need to understand sort of how the person that I'm interviewing sees the world, at least how they see it publicly. But ultimately, the conversations always go in very, very different directions. Sometimes I only cover 10% of my pre-prepared questions, and I just like to see where things go. Now, you've been exhibiting a bit of this behavior already, Lada, and it's that you've described yourself in the past as someone that other people have described as being a troublemaker or a pain in the ass. But your word's not mine, right? And someone yes. that, and this one's particularly harsh, the design Gestapo. Why have you been described that way? Uh, because I have opinions. And your now good friend, Dave Malouf, good friend mm-hmm. of mine, he once coined a term for me. He called me passionate. That stands, <laughs> that passion- that stands passionately opinionated. Right. And I think we both share that, that the gold medal for Dave and I having that you know, term that describes both of us passionate. Uh, no, honestly, I think that uh, why I, I'm a troublemaker, because I speak up, uh, I stand up, and I don't care about the rules as much. When they don't fit me or they don't fit my team, I love keeping things legal, and I love making things ethic. But beyond being legal and ethics, I think that we are here to create your own rules. And partially that's, again, yes, I, I grew up in my formative years when times as everything was changing every day and all the rules were broken and new rules were formed. So yes, it's part of my uh, generation where, where I come from. Also probably part of my personal upbringing because my uh, mom being very strong character, herself would always encourage me to do what's right and speak up and do what's right. So there are multiple uh, cases in my school life where she would defend me in in front of school principal saying, well, I'm, I'm sorry, but she was right and you were wrong. Speaking truth to and, power, and not, they and, say. And, not every, and not, not every parent would tell school principal. You know. <laughs> what did your mother do? Where did she get this uh, sense of confidence and the ability to speak so frankly? Uh, she's a doctor. She's a pediatrician. And she is, in a sense, a unique doctor because she has intuition, what she mm-hmm. calls intuition. But I think in Malcolm Gladwell's term, if you've read the Blink, his Blink book is intuition is experience, a lot of hours experience, plus risk-taking. So what's special about my mom is quite a few times in her professional life, she diagnosed her patients with very rare diagnosis that 0.0.1% one case in 100,000, one case in a million. And even being a young doctor, she was brave enough to say, no, this is not the mainstream case. I believe that this is a super rare one in a million case. And everyone would look at her and say, who are you? 
to decide. Mm. And she was right, right? Mm. So I think that that sort of combination of her, that professional boldness and knowledge and lots of knowledge because you have to know what those one in a million cases, right? That, that a lot of knowledge plus boldness plus her uh, teaching that two things kind of she told me. One of was when you fail, get up, brush off, move on. That's it. That's the story. Get up, brush off, move on. So risk becomes easier and flexibility becomes easier because I know how to recover. Keep on moving. Keep on moving how to recover and whatever, what doesn't kill us make us stronger until it kills us. In which case, well, we're going to die anyway one day. So (laughs) better go out in a blaze of glory then. Um, Exactly. Exactly the point. So might as well do that. After you left your PhD program, you went into enterprise. And I think I mentioned in your introduction that that was for British Telecom. But you've also after entering enterprise, you went to agency and now you've gone back to enterprise or potentially I think you consider Mural a startup still. It hasn't always been easy, I got the sense, to make those leaps and you described yourself in one of the talks that I listened to as feeling stuck in the sense that being an enterprise designer wasn't really seen to be as creative as um, and illustrious as consumer-facing design peers. You know, where do those beliefs about enterprise design come from? And is there any truth to them at all? I love enterprise, right? You probably know from one of my other talks that I do love enterprise and have been around many enterprises. I do do tend to change my career and probably my four-year period is sort of where I change. Part of it is just Again, I grew up with change and, and everything changed. So it's, it's a kind of change in me and I get bored easily working on one thing and moving between consulting. And even when I was at IBM, it's an enterprise, but also IBM Consulting Global Services and uh, being part of uh, in-house product development team, like I was at Microsoft, like I'm now in Neural Smartsheet. The good story about it, I like being T-shaped. And I think that when I'm consulting, I get the breadth. Mm-hmm. I get a different kind of projects, uh, everything from I was working with Intuitive Surgical on uh, surgical robots uh, to working with big technology companies to working with government agencies when I'm there. So it's really interesting, the breadth. But then being a consultant is just you scheme, you don't, you're not there to see your work or your ideas through. And then I go back, back in-house and that's my vertical and and getting the depths um, getting the having a team and being in the middle of that sausage making and then I get bored working on one product or even one suite of product I need variety <laughs> well at least you're true true to type yeah and and I also like, honestly I do believe that's why I tell my team and I encourage my team uh, always to seek change after a while I do believe that good researchers get bored Mm-hmm. right because there's something about good research brain that any brain but that that sort of fresh pair of eyes paired with really good inquisitive research brain can bring so much so for example it's much what we did i had a team of about seven eight researchers and whenever someone would leave we would have a position i would first ask my team if anyone wants to take the open role that we have. So I don't care who we hire for which position. You guys want to take the role that's just been vacated? Fantastic. You take that role, I will backfill for your position. Mm-hmm. Or during performance review conversations, annual performance review conversations, I would ask them, do you want to rotate? While staying within the same team, do you want to go to different pillar? Do you want to have something else? And usually folks within two, three years would say, yes, please, because I've have exhausted as much as I love my immediate team. Uh, my brain isn't, you know, satisfied the curiosity and my brain is no longer there. So let me go to a different pillar, different part of the product. And the benefit of this is cross-pollination because we have the same mm-hmm. people and learning, especially in fast-growing teams where there are lots of, becoming lots of silos because, you know, you have to move fast, autonomy of different pillars, everything else. So that rotating researchers, when they rotate a year, every year, every couple of years, becomes cross-pollination. We bring together the knowledge and what's going on. And at the same time, I'm able to keep people without them leaving, 
while giving them something new once in a while. Yeah, I was going to talk to that as well, or just get your perspective on that, because there is a bit of a perspective out there, at least that still exists, that big enterprise UX is boring and full of bureaucracy and not necessarily as attractive as its exciting B2C brands or startup culture. What have you experienced and what can you say to that in terms of the complexities and the, the levels and types of challenges that exist in enterprise UX? And, and why is that something that people that are considering a career in UX should really think twice about? I'll say the same that I said seven years ago, Nordia is a new sexy. <laughs> and what do you mean um, by that? And what I mean by that, and I think enterprise problems or designing for enterprises, designing business applications is really interesting at the system level because you're designing systems. You're designing not for individual consumption, you're designing for group consumption, you're designing for multiple multiple personas. The, the things that you often have are contradictory things. For example, right now at Mural, we are, or in, any other company that I've been to, we designing today, for example, sharing model, how smart sheets share us, how collaborative products, how we share them with that. Uh, you typically would have a couple of uh, two pillars, growth pillar and enterprise pillar. And growth pillar is all about virality. The growth pillar wants to grow the user base. The growth pillar is, to growth pillar is let's share everything with everyone by default because that's how we grow product if you have a collaborative product. Fantastic. Enterprise pillar deals with whom? with decision makers, with IT guys who said, no, by default, we share nothing with no one. <laughs> so it's a great starting position. A great starting position. So can you please design your default options and everything else? So, and what happens is even though those two pillars belong to the same product team, because they kind of in different side of the spectrum, growth in the enterprise and user facing and IT facing are the different part of the product spectrum. They rarely talk to each other. So through having that research, okay, let's let's figure out the new sharing model. We force our product teams to think together, to think about what's good for this audience, what's good for that audience, how to bring together those conflicting requirements, how to design for them, how to solve for them, and and who even who is the audience in that case? Is the audience the end user? or is the audience the IT decision makers? Because who cares about end users if IT decision makers never approve our own product mm. in a company, right? So the whole the system design complexity and multi-layer layer solutions and multi-layer problems and how to deal with that. So I think for someone who, it's, it's very intellectual mm. work to some extent because of it's so, it's so it has so many faces. So and, and let me tell me about that. Consumer is more straightforward. Consumer is more straightforward. Mm -hmm. There's usually one type of user, and there's a smaller number of scenarios. There are not that many different stakeholders being part of the same target audience. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, clearly the complexity and, and the nature of the challenge in enterprises is vastly different to uh, non enterprise organizations or B2C brands. I don't myself see a particular rush on people looking to study enterprise UX design or there being many courses out there that speak to that complexity and prepare people for that environment. You know, you've been a hiring manager of many enterprise UX researchers and been in the enterprise space now for a while. Where do great enterprise researchers and designers come from? Everywhere. Uh, so uh, I'm a firm believer in uh, I think research is a really interesting discipline, and I do believe that being a good researcher is a combination of professional skills and personal skills more than any other probably uh, product job. And I do firmly, firmly believe that research can be a fantastic career change can be second career for, for everyone, especially now when UX permeates uh, multiple areas and goes beyond technology. So to give you an example, in my previous team at Smartsheet, I had um, one researcher who was career researcher, pretty much did research, professional UX research for 20 years. I had a researcher who was a former lawyer. I had a researcher who was a former structural engineer. 
talk to me about attention to detail. We even called it INS test. If if something passes in, as you know, in terms of detail, um, you get all the uh, I's dotted and T's crossed, and because of that, the structural engineers do, right? They test buildings, God forbid, something slips through the cracks, or God forbid, there are any cracks, right? Uh, I had a brilliant researcher, another brilliant researcher who is a former teacher. I had a researcher who came from customer success. I had a researcher who served in the military and, as far as I know, was IT support in military. So we had a variety of people, a variety of uh, walks of lives and, and previous careers. And I think that made us very strong as a team because we brought that personal experiences and because ultimately that allowed us to see what others won't necessarily see because just like I said, the research is research is research and I do the exact practice exactly the same method they did in a prison, but because the prison context taught me something right that I bring to my product adoption and everything else uh, research life is I, I, I do believe that having that variety of experiences especially in enterprise and being system thinkers at different levels and people who have gone through career transition they're probably better system thinkers by default because they knew how to apply their previous skills and everything else to the new one right so they see that that they're own through the lens of their own career and mm. being having a multifaceted career i don't say they're better than others, but I think they're good at seeing enterprise as that multi-layer system where we need to unpeel the onion and see beyond the surface. So it sounds like what you're saying is that the strength that the team had was that they all came from different perspectives and they had had previous career uh, careers, in some cases as teachers or lawyers, and it was that that enabled them to interrogate the research questions from different angles and collectively that was a strength. Yeah, and I and I do think that so I for young researchers I would I would advise there's there are pros and cons gang enterprise and when I give career advice to to young researchers so you decide for yourself there is no good way or there is no right path because if you're a young researcher and you started enterprise big companies they have processes they have rules so you will learn the process much faster. Right, you will learn uh, how uh, sausage made. You'll have a set of rules. You'll learn the big picture of enterprise, different stakeholders. You will learn how to work together as marketing department and customer success and the whole ecosystem faster. So you'll have uh, a bigger picture of learning of the kind of the complexity of the world. But you might get bored because you will be probably assigned to a feature or feature area on one product pillar. So there won't be much variety here. There will be a big variety of the world, but not much variety within your narrow research focus. If you start in an agency, you will have the breadth, you will learn a lot, but you won't necessarily have an agency because it's project in and out, in and out, you won't have the depth. Mm. And then your recommendations, can be good, but still surface level, because ultimately at the end of the day, researcher and especially designer, I do believe that they need to know how the sausage is made to give good recommendations that are viable and feasible, not just inspiring. Yeah, and this like, highlights a, a deep trend, doesn't it? So UX expertise drifting towards uh, the sausage factory and being inside the enterprise and less reliance on external agencies to provide that insight. Yeah, and I, I'm very grateful because I started my uh, proper UX career at IBM, where I was uh, first. I was in IBM Ease of Use group that mm. later became IBM Design, and since we were looking uh, after UX practices and tools across the whole IBM kind of central team, and then uh, part of this group when I was in UK, we got reworked into IBM Global Services, right, in this strategy and change group. So consulting. So I had lots of interesting work there, but when I got an offer from Microsoft, I came to my team and I told them, guys, I have an offer from Microsoft. What do I do? I don't want to leave. I love you. And they pushed me out for good. Mm. They pushed me out saying, go and learn how the sausage is made. You will never be a good consultant if you don't know how the sausage is made, mm. if you don't know what it takes, if you don't know the trade-offs 
that people will have to make down the line, you will always you can always come back to consulting. You will be much better consultant because your advice will be solid advice, and you can actually help them create a roadmap, not just hand them over the vision. So speaking of advice, you were once asked by a student what your ultimate advice for a young researcher was, and you said that it's your stakeholders are as important as your users engage them, which sounds like something that you, you may have learned having seen how the sausage was made. What was the specific experience or moment that comes to mind when you realized that that was so much of the uh, importance or secret weapon, if you like, for UX and UX research? I think the very first example was, um, I, I mentioned it recently, back at IBM, it was one of my first projects. I did a heuristic evaluation of a really crappy interface. It was crappy. Seriously. And I did 170 findings all negative, and I was very proud because no stone was left in turn. Oh dear. Uh, and the client nearly fired us. <laughs> and I cried. Why was that ladder? I, I, I did such a good job, right? No stone yeah. was left in turn. And then my Found all the problems. Like, yeah. So like, it's like look, always start as a positive. I was like, they're not so crappy. There is nothing that we can do. No, 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 no. Go back and do a diligent job of actually finding something. There's always something to build upon. So I found a grand total of three good things that we put on top of the list of my 170 bad things that I covered. And because of that, because we led this, however small the positivity was, thinking about that, the client who was stakeholder in that case. And and as a psychologist, I should have known better, right? It was kind of a moment, oh my God, I should have known better because of course no one wants to hear bad things all the time. Of course we need to start with the positive things. Of course it will shut people down if we do nothing but, but negative criticism and everything else. How didn't I think about it? And, and that was probably the moment like, yes, stakeholders matter because ultimately if the client rejects my beautiful, wonderful, super smart findings just because they're pissed off with me, right? It's not going to be good for, for the end user, for the customer. So mm. this is the light of the day. And a similar situation and, and then on and on and on is ultimately when I'm in the house, it's our, my own product teams, is no matter what I want to do for the customer, guess who's going to do it? My stakeholders. They are there to implement it, right? So I need to bring them on board. I need to motivate them to do better job i need to do them so it always starts with our own team because if we don't engage our own teams the improvements will never see the light of the day right it's just the example i just mentioned like who cares about end users if it doesn't approve our product in the company there there won't be any end users well i think we've just discovered the reason why usability was such a uh, unloved art for so many years it's because all, all we did in like usability me. was tell, exactly. tell people that they had problems yeah now we've solved that one, I think we can move on to the, the next thing here, which is related to what you were saying about involving stakeholders. And that's this common objection that people in research actually give quite often, which is, oh, my stakeholders, they don't have time to get involved in research. You know, what do you say to that? You didn't try hard enough. And it depends on how you got involved in research. I'll give you an advice. So once at Microsoft, we had a super big project, super expensive. Like, and it was a project that uh, where stakeholders were VP level people from multiple Microsoft divisions. And Microsoft is known for not talking to each other different teams, right? So I had to really deal with the whole stakeholder. And what do I do? How do how do you engage all of them? Because they don't speak usually. So I think it was our second beer or third beer. Uh, we're having a conversation with, with my project teammate. I was like, okay, just what if? I need, to, I need to have a pilot. What if we just pilot that very expensive three hour interview methodology? It was a really like two and a half hour, two, two and a half to three hour methodology mapping their ideal experience. What if I pilot with my stakeholders, right? Would I use them as a pilot so that uh, we engage them? And what we decided, and it worked because one, one person gave us his time and he loved the experience. Mm. And he told everyone, oh my God, like, Lara, you, need, you need to actually, you need to do the same exercise as all the others. I mean, they're a VP. They're, no, no, no. I'll tell them that you need to get their exercise. So the, we put them 
through that exercise, all our 12 big stakeholders through that, we had to trim it down. Yes, my senior VP or corporate VP, who he was a time court VP, didn't have two and a half hours, but he gave me half an hour. Then he canceled his next meeting because he was so so super engaged. So he, they went through the whole protocol. And guess what happened? They loved the protocol because it was really interesting discussion. It was about them, not about the product. So they got the message that the most important part of discussion, not talking about the product, talking about them as people. And what happened after that, they were eager to see the results of the study like never before. Like, oh, what is coming? How did we do? Because they're competitive. People mm -hmm. at that level, audience. so how did we, did we do as good as users and users did? did, we, did and what happened at the end that we presented, we did analyze, we, we hold them as control samples. We did analyze the results and we presented the results first. We said, okay, guys, let me present your results first. You're like, I'm going to tell you about you. I asked about you, now I'm going to tell you about you. And they're, oh, yeah, it's good. <laughs> now, let's, let's, let's guess. What were the user results are? Now that you have the framework, make an educated guess where you were similar to our customers, where you were different to our customers. So we played the game. We tapped into their curiosity and we played the game. Guess what the customer said? I didn't show them the pie chart. Like, yes, you draw me the pie chart. You draw me the pie chart I'm about to reveal to you and I'll tell you if you're right or wrong. So everyone was trying to do, and when you do it in Paris, it was trying to do a good job because they were competing with each other once again. And then when we looked at results with, with our users interview, what we discovered is we had three main uh, personas for the users. And our executives matched one of the personas completely. At which moment I said, fantastic, Isaac, give him a good pat on the back. Fantastic, beautiful. I don't need to do research with that persona. Whenever <laughs> I have a question about that persona, I'll come to you. You are my target user. I get it. But you are one third of my target users. Now shut up and listen about the rest. <laughs> okay? So you led with some good news. So you'd learned your lesson from exactly. IBM. Exactly. <laughs> hey, we could, we, honestly, we saved time because we didn't, we didn't know, we didn't have to do research with that persona. I could ask my my stakeholders. We didn't have to we cut the budget because I needed two thirds because that. And because they felt engaged and we actually probably for the first time in my career, I explicitly told them, yes, you are my target audience. Mm -hmm. But one of them, right, it, it really tapped into that, that visceral psychological reaction, I am invested and I need to listen. I am a target audience and I need to listen to other target audiences. And there was also a bit of social proof in there. I mean, you led with that one BP saying yes and getting involved, and that was all the others needed to also get involved. But I, I know that in corporate environments in particular, there's often some hesitance when someone from the C-suite or the executive level gets involved in anything. I mean, often the people that make it to that level inside a big bureaucracy are accustomed to people telling them what they want to hear. It's not often that they hear very many dissenting voices. And this can, I can imagine, not something I've had firsthand experience with, can imagine that it leads to uh, people behaving differently around them. And as a research leader, you know, what sort of things do researchers need to be mindful of in their own behavior and how they deal with executives so that they don't bias or shape the research in such a way that it, it leads to different outcomes than it would be if it was just any any other person that they were speaking with? I, I would suggest a couple of things. One is engage executives as people. They're people and they want to be heard. Right. So what I would suggest doing exactly like what I just described is in whatever way, shape or form, engage executives in understanding what they think, almost like do the baseline and executive mm -hmm. opinion on the topic. That's important. What's the baseline? What do they think? Play a game with that. Like imagine like if this is a, the outcome of that uh, research, what do you think? What kind of results do you think I bring? What do you think that audience will say? What do you think this audience will say? Right. When you so they they want to be heard and they have opinions and they are executives because they are super smart people who have super good opinions and who who have been right a lot in their time. Mm. Right. So knowing exactly what their point of view is on the topic and having in the better uh, the baseline. Then when we present results, is start with what matches. 
Start, hey, Brendan, remember I asked you, what do you think will happen? You were right. You were right here and you were right here. You're giving them so cookies. Start, giving them cookies, some of the answers are exactly what you said. So we, I'm not even going to talk about them because mm-hmm. you're a P, you, you hit the ground right here. Now, these are the things that didn't match. Mm-hmm. And instead of just saying you were wrong and now I'm right is help me understand why they didn't match. Help me figure out, right? Coming from that humble perspective is yes, I have data, but let's let's figure out why, mm-hmm. right? And typing into their curiosity. And so, and I think at, at that point they become uh, more, much more open to, oh, have you done this? Have you done that? Have you done this? Oh, maybe I haven't seen it this way. Maybe I haven't seen it. So they become the personal engagement, right? The mm. personal level of curiosity and, and that, that, that smartness. And I, it's, it's not a guarantee they might be just like, no, I'm still right, right? All these people like that. But I think it's worth trying to, to solicit their advice and to ask them to interpret data. Mm. How would you interpret this data? It doesn't exactly what we think it would be, how would you think, how would you interpret it? And if you ask different people, how would they interpret the data for you, right? You'll get that multiplicity of opinion and people thinking about, oh, have you thought about this perspective? Have you thought about that perspective? Maybe it's because of this, maybe because of this. No, I haven't thought about it because I'm not the smartest person in the world. Mm-hmm. Right? And also the trick that really worked well for me, very tactical one is before showing them any data, show them empty graphs and pie charts and whatever whichever your data presentation and give them the time like, okay guys i'm about to show you the persona distribution we played in spreadsheet or the, we had different jobs to be done distribution pie chart or graph here is your piece of paper here is your screen draw a chart how do you think that what do you think is going to be on the next slide I love it it's, it's it, playing a game right you're playing a game playing again have it five yeah. minutes and again and then and then flip it, and this is how things are. Mm. Yeah, get some thinking, and it's probably the most fun they've had all day in their meetings, to be honest. Exactly. It's, 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 it's fun, but engaging, I think that we, when we fail as, as a discipline, uh, typically, is we give them the results. Mm. And we give them, we tend, like designers don't like sharing, uh, you know, the work that, that's not ready. Well, you know, I need... It's a good design question. When when are we ready to share things with users? When are we ready for feedback? Well, there's no such thing as being ready for feedback. You show your <laughs> designs, and you have to show them now. You show them now, right? And in the same thing, we as researchers, we don't have necessarily that ethic of showing our unbuttoned results or our role. It's like show and engage people in conversation. Mm ask them to help you interpret the data rather than give them the final solution that they are not invested in, it's not theirs. They have to work for it in order for, for them to absorb the insights. They mm. have to work for it and they have to create their own insights. So facilitate the insights, don't give it to them because otherwise they're not insights. That's a huge point, a really big point. If anything, we, we often run the risk of boring them to death with process before we give them the outcomes as well. But I really like what you're saying about involving them in the process of analyzing the data and helping them to contribute to that. Gamification. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And opening up that, you know, that mystery about, okay, so I thought it was this, but it's not. What's it going to be? It sounds like you're really involving them in the process and so that they're more committed or more interested in knowing what that outcome might be. Now, I don't want to oversimplify things or over-romanticize UX research, but it sounds like what you're saying, Lada, is that being effective in UX research at the enterprise level is as much about winning the hearts and minds of stakeholders as it is about the thoroughness or the the way in which you practice the actual gathering of the data and interpreting of the the results. You're you're absolutely right. And I've come a long way because I was trained as a scientist. I was trained as a hardcore scientist, short of having a lab coat, uh, right, uh, on me. And science was everything for me and, 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 and rigor and thoroughness was everything for me. And I think that uh, we do and we should be combining that, the thoroughness of doing research with the fun of doing it because I do believe that I have the best job of all possible jobs, so don't tell anyone. But I do have the best <laughs> job. I love it, and it's and it's awesome because I get paid for learning. 
<laughs> right? New things every day. And I think that, that being an artist and performer as much as a scientist and a journalist, right? And an improv artist and, and a teacher and everything else. It's, these are all the skills that, that we need to have as part of our training. And I think some of them are, uh, some of them are, can be uh, trained in school to the point like the school needs to give us or some formal training on how we deal with difficult audiences and everything else. Mm-hmm. And, and some of them is probably uh, life lessons, right? How we deal with stakeholders and everything else. So yeah, it's a combination. And how we get over ourselves is also something that I'm hearing from what you've been telling me, you know, this sort of embracing of opinion, because often opinion in research circles is kind of held at arm's length, you know, it's sort of not viewed in the same light as uh, understanding and observing behavior. But what you've said is that there's actually a really important role for surfacing opinions. And if it's not necessarily the opinions of your user, it's the opinions of your stakeholder. So you can align them and you can involve them in what it is that you're trying to achieve. Yes, I I completely agree with you. Now, I also looked at your talk, which was titled Make My Day. And you said in that talk, I no longer worry whether stakeholders will adopt my insights. Why don't you worry about that anymore? Because they have their own insights. And Mm -hmm. they're not my insights. The insights, true insights happen in their own heads. And my job is not to bring insights to them. My job is to facilitate those bulb, light bulbs going on in their heads. It certainly sounds they like can't you say, have a, they can't a lot say of fun no doing to their that. own things, right? They cannot say no to if, if it's if it's theirs, right? If they have a stake in the game, if they've been there through the process, if it's their insights, they can't say no. Yeah, it's almost like a reframing of the relationship between research and the rest of the business from what can sometimes be set up as an adversarial relationship, not necessarily the way that the rest of the business views research, but sometimes I feel like researchers feel like nobody listens to them. You know, there's a bit of that kind of like teenager kind of attitude, like why aren't they, what they're paying me for this? Why aren't they listening to what I'm saying to them? If no one listens to you, you talk too much. (laughs) Maybe I should talk less. And on that note, (laughs) I'll I'll bring things down to a... But down to a close, it's, it's time, unfortunately, for us to entertain that. You know, there's something that I've been asking a few guests about lately, and you're someone who, as per your LinkedIn profile, says that you value candor above diplomacy, which I think is perfect for this question. And that is, what are we not talking enough about or taking seriously enough as a field in UX at the moment? I think we're not talking in one of the things we're not talking enough is what we mentioned earlier in in the game in, in the interview is that our own well-being mm. right and and how to have those difficult conversations how to navigate those uh, conversations with customers and stakeholders where we do need to push and press sometimes and and go uh, into the uncomfortable zone to get better insights, to get better. So I think there is there is a training that needs to happen there. I don't think we talk enough about research and UX in other areas of life outside of technology in, in broader sense. Like mm. I'll give you an example is a couple of years ago, I was a program director of Interaction, the IXDA conference that happened in Seattle. And when we looked at submissions, there were numbers of missions that we decided we have to have as a theme. Uh, there were submissions uh, from designers who work uh, with terminally ill patients, like designing for end of life and death. Mm-hmm. And even having that topic on the conference agenda was the, the kind of knee-jerk reaction, you know, this like, oh, do we want to talk about that? Mm-hmm. Okay, yes, we absolutely must talk about it. And it's the most fascinating topic or the session we had because this is where things matter. This is where things truly matter, right? It's not just designing for patient experience, it's designing for end-of-life experience, in which case there are so deep ethical questions like we we had a discussion with that is 
are you designing for the one who is dying or are you designing for the one who is living? Whose experience is that, right? Whose experience uh, matters most? Or designing what happens at, you know, with your digital afterlife and things like that. So I don't think we address those difficult to talk about subjects that are in dear need of our professional help. Yet, on the one hand, that not many people go there and we don't talk about it there, right? Because everyone feels uncomfortable. And I think we need to go beyond things that are comfortable and really purposefully look for those uncomfortable topics of the conversation to bring them up to the surface, to normalize them. Mm -hmm. And not just the surface ethics of AI and things like that. No, let's talk about deep ethics. Yeah, that's a really important point. And it's definitely something, now that you've mentioned it, I've never really considered end of life experience and just sort of the gravity of some of the design challenges like that, that are clearly out there. And you're right, we don't really seem to be discussing those, at least not openly or in great volume within the community. And I, I think something that frustrates me is sometimes some of the circular nature of the conversations that we have as a profession. So I think that's a, a really valid and, even, and interesting even going meaningful without going, point. Yeah, even without going too deep, like say for example, technology products where I'm in a job of productivity products. Uh, guess what? Some of my products will eliminate some of the jobs. Yeah. It's not my What's business. The human technically, cost? It's not, it, it, technically, it's not my business of being a researcher to do that. But mm. if my product is successful, it will eliminate some of the job, some jobs. It might eliminate disciplines. I feel responsible because the ultimate success of my product is not just productivity. What are you going to do with those people? Mm. What's going to happen there? And I would like, uh, but who else is there to have that conversation? Right. Yeah. So I would yeah. like us to go beyond the product and beyond the immediate user experience and looked at the effects, mm. long-term effects of our products that we design and how people there. Yeah. A really interesting. Uh, to give you one last example, really interesting. One of the most fascinating projects of my life was working with. We had a project with intuitive surgical, designing uh, that uh, surgical robots, and uh, my part of the research was to understand how technology changes the environment, and what what happens is the communication in the uh, operating room changes completely because surgeon is no longer the person in the center of the room who has a view of everything. The surgeon is the person sitting in the corner. And looking at the screen so the surgeon is not aware of the situation mm. going on in the surgical right but also uh, talking to one of the famous surgeons uh, she who taught how to use that um, robotic uh, equipment said that the anatomy needs to be taught in different way if this is the future of surgery the anatomy needs to be taught in different way because right now anatomy taught in kind of plain layer by layer mm. and if Everything that a surgeon is saying is in science. They need to they need to learn anatomy from inside out, not from outside in, right? So that was really interesting discussion. I was like, I've never thought about that. But the effects of particular technologies we can be so long lived and and long term that I think it's on us to at least look at that and at least bring awareness of either those who design technology or those who buy our products, right? Okay, guys, you need to think about that. What are you going to do yeah. with all those people? Yeah, and also our own awareness on the impact that what it is that we're doing and contributing to has on other people. And also when you have that awareness, what impact does that have on us as practitioners, you know, we pretty much started this conversation with your experience working in the prison and not being prepared for that. And I think as we wake up a little bit as people working in technology and realize that our um, decisions have real consequences, whether that's economic or otherwise for people around us, it's a really important thing for us to be able to work through. And at the moment, we don't have we don't have any sort of guidelines on how to deal with any of that. And I know that you, given your family background and also one of your talks, you're very familiar with the Hippocratic Oath. And I thought that you might find it interesting if you didn't know already that in 2017 in New Zealander, uh, by the name of Sam Hazeldean, who's a former general practitioner, he um, managed to get an amendment passed to the Hippocratic Oath, which was, and I'll quote now, I will attend to my own health, well-being and abilities in order to provide care of the highest standard. And I just can't help but wonder whether or not we need to have our 
own oath or something to that effect that encourage us encourages us to take care of our own health and well-being so we can do the best work we possibly can. I, I completely agree. And by own our own well-being, I would say our personal well-being as well as well-beings of our mm. teams, because we are the psychologists in-house usually, right? So we are the people who are probably most knowledgeable about human psyche. And it's it's on us to take care of the psychological well-being of our teams as well. Mm. Stakeholder engagement and whatnot. What a great place to end our conversation today, Lada. Thank you. It has been such a wonderful conversation with so many great stories and amazing insights. Thank you for so generously sharing those today. Thank you so much, Brandon. You're an awesome researcher. That felt like a therapy for me. So thank you very much for the wonderful <laughs> conversation and questions uh, that never were asked before. Thank you. You're, you're most welcome. You're more than welcome. Lada, if people want to find out more about you and what you are up to, what is the best way for them to do that? Uh, probably LinkedIn because I don't tweet. I find uh, it's very limited. Uh, so yeah, that's connect through LinkedIn and explain why and we'll, we'll get the conversation going. Great. Thanks, Lada. And to everyone who's tuned in, it's been great having you here as well. Everything that we've covered will be in today's show notes on YouTube, including where you can find Lada and any resources that we've mentioned. If you enjoyed the show and you want to hear more great conversations like this with world-class leaders in UX design and product management, don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe to the podcast. And until next time, keep being brave. Hey, hey.